It's Wednesday, October 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Twitter has become awful is the sort of kids are coddled these days. They don't make them like they used to type observation which is at once irrefutable and timeless. Every generation could lob the complaint about their successors and be right and also totally uninsightful. It's become awful? I mean, before Elon Musk took over, all the Twitterati did was badmouth Twitter. Okay, now it's a more whole body activity. Twitter has become X and everyone feels free to talk shit about their X. But I have to say, I didn't mind Twitter through the first seven or so days of the Israel-Hamas war. But in the last 24 hours, it has been nothing but a fountain of the latest word du jour, disinformation. Sure, there were false images from obvious or at least obvious to me seeming accounts beforehand. And that's when Twitter's algorithm encounters my user mental algorithm and either discernment is properly engaged or the brain becomes soft mush and credulous or overcorrects into a place of impenetrable incredulity. In any case, I did not believe just any random account saying that this bomb or that video or that celebration was the real artifact, but people I trust had had it. And this was even before the events of the last 24 hours. Here was Rory Stewart talking on his The Rest is Politics podcast. I open up my phone this morning and I read, Hamas ripped open a pregnant Israeli woman's stomach, killed the fetus, then killed the mother. Hamas raped women and girls, mutilated their bodies and then shot them. And I then try to go online to find out whether this is true or not. And this is not just, I mean, that, that this is, a, I'm not sort of random post, it's a post with 1.1 million views, which a lot of people who I know um, have liked and forwarded and shared, right? So that's on the Israeli side. On the Palestinian side, equal news is going out. Pictures of Israelis using phosphorus bombs, pictures of injured civilians, uh, interviews with Israeli soldiers saying they're going to kill or reservists saying they're going to kill every woman and child are then posted back to this thing, right? And there is not any proper content moderation. Now, all that's true, or rather, none of that is true that he was talking about. But what Rory was saying describes the Twitter experience. Still, I did go to Twitter and see real scenes of Hamas really attacking Israelis via their GoPro videos. I saw real clips of anguished relatives of hostages and real videos of hostage takings. I saw real evidence of some people that we saw abducted one day being executed the next day. I didn't watch the videos of the execution, but you could see signs that these poor people had been killed. Gatekeepers. I love gatekeepers. I really do. I love a good gatekeeper. A bad gatekeeper, I usually think, should become a good gatekeeper instead of thrown away and exploded. Gatekeepers are good and necessary, but I set my own level of sensitivity. And since Twitter sets essentially a zero level of sensitivity, I get to choose actual content that I'm not going to get on demand and that I'm not going to get sometimes ever from CNN, the BBC, or newspapers. And then came the destruction of the Al-Akhli Hospital. Clarissa Ward on CNN reported it this way. 
we, we saw them in the hours after uh, it became clear just how many people had died in this hospital strike. You heard Hamas call on people uh, throughout the world, basically, to go out and do whatever they could to, to give voice to their rage and anguish. Uh, clearly, that call has been met by many, even those who don't necessarily support Hamas, but who feel that this is just a completely unjustifiable act of hideous violence. And so you saw... I was unsure who was behind the attack. The New York Times originally reported, Israel strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Yes, Palestinians did say that. Was it true? The Times didn't stand by it, so they quickly changed that headline. The Israeli Defense Forces denied that they did it. Here was Clarissa Ward in a different two-way, a different report, trying to put the Israeli denials in perspective. I will say, just based on seeing these rocket attacks many times over the years, that they don't usually have an impact like that in terms of the size of the blast, in terms of the scale of the death toll and the scope of the damage. It's also not the first time it's important to add that we have seen the IDF categorically deny something uh, before being forced to kind of do an about face after an extensive investigation. But at this stage, uh, it remains to be seen exactly what happened. We will have to try to put together a fuller picture, and that could take days. And in the meantime, what is clear is that these images that you have been playing, which are absolutely horrifying and hard to watch, are having a huge impact across the region, certainly uh, here uh, in the West Bank. And that's why I, on this show, was careful to use the passive voice and some wiggle words. I said, we saw the Al-Ali, I now know it's Ahli, so I said, we saw the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza City destroyed today with reportedly hundreds dead. I don't love being that vague, but I was careful not to attribute the strike to either side before we knew the facts. And even my hedge statement may yet prove wrong. Photos show not a hospital destroyed, but it seems that the strikes were in the grounds of the hospital where hundreds of people were taking refuge. And so even a careful vetter of information, which is what I was trying to be, I found it hard to get it right. Twitter, back to Twitter, they're not such a careful force. Twitter was nothing but a useless morass on this issue because what was needed was time. And in time, well, we still don't know, not really. We'll probably never really know as much as we could know anything. But now the U.S. government is saying that Israel was right. It was a misfired rocket. And the BBC, Reuters, the New York Times, all manner of news organizations are more or less agreeing, or at least citing much more evidence on that side of things than the contrary. The BBC Verify service spoke to three different experts who said the strike is not consistent with what you would expect from a typical Israeli airstrike with a large munition. Israel published intercepted chatter that pins the blame on Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So the hospital bomb that killed 500 might not have been a bomb. It didn't hit a hospital and it incurred an indeterminate number of dead. Or maybe everything I said other than the word might, the opposite of all that can be true. And each side is sure to call the other explanation not just inaccurate or a lie, but part of a conscious campaign of disinformation. Which brings me to my show today. It is a full show interview on the topic of disinformation with Danigal Young, a professor of communications at the University of Delaware. Her book, Wrong, 
how media, politics, and identity drive our appetite for misinformation is the right text at this moment, or like all of what we know about Al-Akhli Hospital, maybe wrong is wrong. Luckily, I don't blindly accept the rightness of wrong, as you will hear in my interview in a minute. Misinformation is, I think it should have been the word, of the year for 2023. I've said on this show, it is often wielded to mean information that I don't like. But an excellent new book, which gets into how we form impressions, opinions, and thoughts, and how the media and how politics works in this formulation is out now by past GIST guest, Danigal Goldthwaite-Young, who is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. Name of the book is, and I am going to do the classic McLaughlin group pronunciation of the title, Wrong! How Media Politics and Identity Drive Our Competition for Misinformation. Danigal Goldthwaite-Young! You say what? (laughs) To be fair, the title is begging to be pronounced that way. Wrong. It does. Yeah. The answer is <laughs> special does. K and banana. <laughs> aggressive title, and it's not an aggressive book. So, but if it yells at you, at least you'll look at it. Maybe. Well, so. it's not just the title. I mean, there's a huge X and a big red cover. Yeah, it's very aggressive. It's desperately trying to break through all this misinformation. I think. <laughs> it is. I'm hoping it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for having me on. So I think that the big contribution to the book is you talk about your own studies and other people's studies. I understand the media and politics thing pretty well. It's how our identities interact and interplay and maybe mislead us. So there's really good new evidence about that and what is causing uh, our identities and what is caused by our identities in terms of misimpressions. Can you uh, detail some of what the book lays out? Yeah, love it. Uh, Mike, you read the book. I love it. Uh, So identity is really at the heart of all of this because (sighs) folks will argue with this and we don't want to think this is true, but we're not really hardwired to want to be accurate in how we understand the world. What we really want or what I'm Simplifying by calling the three C's, we want to feel like we comprehend the world, we want to feel like we have control, and we want to feel like we have community. But how we sort of realize those three things is shaped by our social identity. So our status as a member of a team. So we're going to want to understand the world like our team does. We're going to want to have control like our team does, and we're going to want to have community and connection with members of our team. Um, so the, the, the role of identity is paramount here, and there's a lot of work on how when you prime someone's social identity, like their political identity, and you prime it by having them talk about their political identity and the threat posed by outgroups, political outgroups, it really shapes not just what they're thinking about, but it shapes what they see and how they experience the world around them. And so to the extent that our our identities are primed, they are shaping how we view the world. But there's another part of it. I mean, there are many other parts of it, but one is that we're either uh, intuitive thinkers or where, what would be the opposite? Uh, Evidence-based and data-based, yeah. Evidence-based, yeah. And so you have a lot of evidence that 
the intuitive thinkers tend to be more conservative. You also present evidence that conspiracy believers tend to be more conservative. Why is that? Is it because what of what we were just talking about, the identity aspect? Yeah, so I need to be really specific that this is, when you look at data across the world on the relationship between political ideology and conspiracy theory belief. This doesn't necessarily hold. There's a lot of work by Joe Yasinski and Joanne Miller and others. This, the United States has something a little wacky going on where there is this, this. It sure does. <laughs> it, there's some, there's some wacky stuff going on here. And there's a, a wonderful case that's been made by scholars Oliver and Wood who argue that the reason that ways of coming to truth, that is through intuition or through evidence, are increasingly correlated with political ideology in the U.S. Um, is because of the sort of deliberate courting of evangelical Christians by the right over the last 20 to 30 years. And when you are talking about individuals who put their faith in God and, you know, believe in a higher power, it makes sense that intuition, faith, and what you feel to be true is going to be more powerful for you than the role of potentially disconfirming evidence. So that's the case that they make about how this is happening. Um, I'm not, I think that that's probably a lot of it, but I, I'm also exploring the possibility that what if ways of coming to truth are themselves part of like a team identity? Like people like me, people on my team, we go with our gut because the gut brings us to truth. Pe or people like me, we trust evidence, we trust science. Um, and I think, you know, you know that sign that's all over like my very liberal neighborhood, that's like, in this house, we believe yes. Black Lives Matter, <laughs> um, immigrants are people or leak, I forget what it is, but then it says science is real. Yes. And I'm like, I, I'm very nervous about science being politicized in this way and I understand the inclination to put it on the sign, but I don't know that it's it's in science's best interest, for example. Well, the people who aren't on, quote unquote, my team, who trust intuition would not say, well, we're rejecting science. Right. They would question the science and have alternative science. And sometimes they're even right. Yeah. Well, so it's really important that I say, I'm talking about folks who have faith in intuition and emotion and on the other side, folks who have faith in evidence and data. However, we measure those two things not as like one bipolar scale, like either or. We measure them as two separate scales because most of us, and really probably all of us, use both of them and both and, and report using both of them. And so what my favorite piece of info here is that when you measure these things and what how people say they come to truth both of those are positively correlated. So it's like people who say that they value intuition are more likely to say they also value evidence and data. So it's it's not an either or. Yeah, so a couple of um, rebuttals to the idea that it's mostly uh, the fact that the evangelical movement has its hold in the Republican Party, which is true. If you look, as you have, at the polls of religiosity in America, it's plummeted. Um, now spiritual, not religious, is more popular than any single religion. So as religiosity has plummeted, 
our belief in conspiracy theories has increased. That would tend to contradict that. And I'd also throw out there, you write in your book about the self-reinforcing um, phenomenon of the right being pretty homogeneous. They're white evangelical Christians, whereas the left are a whole bunch of things. And the uh, right is therefore, it's more prone to re- have a reinforced belief system. But I wonder what those researchers who say it's mostly the religiosity would say about blacks, which are who are more religious than white liberals, and especially Latinos, which are, you know, not overwhelmingly democratic, like African Americans are, but are much more religious than even white Americans. Uh, I, I don't think that their religiosity, well, if liberals or democratic voters are less inclined to believe in conspiracy theory. What about those two big elements of the democratic party? That's a great question. So uh, my colleagues and I did some research during COVID on belief and misinformation surrounding COVID. And, you know, we weren't looking specifically at the role of religiosity in predicting those beliefs, but you are correct that especially in the early days of COVID, there were high rates of misinformation beliefs actually among African-Americans and Hispanics. Um, So I'm not sure what the mechanism is there, but that does speak to your point, right? That perhaps religiosity, I I think it also depends on the kind of faith you're practicing, Mm -hmm. obviously. I don't think it's just, you know, if you have a God, any God. Um, I think especially with evangelical Christianity, there's wonderful work by Francesca Tripodi at University of North Carolina. Her book, Propagandist Playbook, examines how um, evangelical Christians, their, their relationship with the scripture is very much Um, a direct one where they are to engage directly with God and directly with the word. And there's no like intermediary like there was when I went, I'm a lapsed Catholic, Mm -hmm. so I'll confess that here. Um, So her, her, she makes the case that that kind of reinforces a pathway to knowing that's very, um, it's, it's faith in one's own, perception and one's own interpretation of of God. Yeah. Which I think that's provocative. I think that that's interesting. I think that there's another aspect of something that the book writes about and you talked about, which is that when you prime people when they think about their team or their ideology, they're more prone to uh, revert to ev- either evidence-based or intuitive thinking. Everything is so negatively polarized these days that if it is the Democrats having the lawn sign saying science, 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 it's guaranteed, okay, what's the opposite of that political position, the Republicans or the right would have to say your science is full of it, or here are the places where your science is full of it. They could find a couple of uh, places where the scientific establishment got aspects of COVID wrong, and that's going to happen. Can we say how devastating that yeah, is? Yeah, it's not good. Can we just say for us for a hot second? Between that and you know, this recent work, there was that piece in the New York Times about how conservatives are not... They see that higher education college is not worth it. Um, whether or not they're sending their kids is another question, but um, they see it as politicized and they don't trust it, et cetera. Also hugely devastating to the extent that the education system in the United States and science as an institution becomes politicized and per- perceived to be a bastion of the left. I, I, we're, we're in deep. That's not good mm-hmm. for anyone. Yeah. 
So the book talks a lot about, and there are many charts about two major pieces of misinformation. One is that the election was stolen, and one is that COVID was a hoax, essentially. And those are two ideas that are quite inaccurate and are popular on the right. But I think if you tried, you could find, maybe not as devastating as the COVID one, maybe that's the biggest misimpression that killed the most people or had the biggest effect on our life. But there were major misimpressions among people on the left that I don't know if we, I sense that you wouldn't want to call it misinformation or most people who uh, do this sort of research wouldn't call, call it misinformation, but it is misinformation. I'm thinking of the rate of killing of, say, unarmed black men. The more liberal you are, the more wildly you, inaccurate your um, impressions of how often that goes on. The Skeptic Magazine did a poll and they asked how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2019. Now, the real answer is, do you know, do you want to estimate what the real answer is? Do you know? I I don't want to guess (laughs) and I don't know. So there was, uh, the choices were about 10, (laughs) about 100, about 1,000 or about 10,000. So I can guess what people said. Yes, can ahead. I guess that? Yes, I'm going to guess that liberals said ten thousand. Well, actually, they didn't. Yes, very liberal people. Fourteen uh, percent <laughs> said about ten thousand, and seven percent said more than ten thousand. So a good quarter of very liberal people said that, but thirty percent of very liberal people said a thousand, and the most popular choice among liberal and very liberal people are about 100. Now, the answer is it was, you know, according to the database you use, somewhere between 12 and 27. So that to me, and that has yeah. enormous consequences, that to me sure. killed as many people as the January 6th riots. And it's, a, to me, a clear sign of misinformation, but with a leftward valence. Uh, so my politics are complicated, Mike because I'm married to a homicide prosecutor Mm -hmm. and who shares your view of this. And um, we talk about this regularly. And it really comes down to the question of how many people are appropriate to be killed by one's own state, right? How many innocent people is the appropriate number to be killed by police, right? So if your answer is zero, well, then anything is newsworthy. Then anything greater than than zero is newsworthy. Um, but I think that what you're getting at is absolutely true in terms of perception, in terms of ideology and identity shaping perception of reality. And what's going on in that, I would venture to guess, is that police on the far left, police have been perceived as an outgroup threat right? They are, they are a threat. And so if you have, if you perceive an outgroup threat posed by police, your identity as sort of part of this group of people who is either, you know, liberal or you ally yourself with this liberal ideology, you are going to see the world in keeping with that identity and, and in keeping with that identity threat. So it makes sense to me. It's not rational, Okay, but it, it makes sense to me how that would happen. And by the right. way, just to, to be clear, that misinformation, the way we talk about it in literature, misinformation is information that's out in the world that's false. Misperceptions are the things that reside in our heads that are false. So it, what I think is, is interesting here is on the right, I would argue that we have more elites and sources overtly pushing 
mis and disinformation that is content out in the world that is false. Whereas what you're talking about, I think largely stems from problems of perception and identity-driven wrongness, not necessarily overt mis and disinformation campaigns. Well, to me, it's very similar to much of the uh, much of the verbiage around the stolen election, which unless, you know, Donald Trump was clearly promoting it, but many Republican or right-coded media would talk about concerns about the ballot or would certainly construct a newscast which could only lead someone to believe that there was a lot of chicanery mm-hmm. going on, just as much of the coverage of police killings and police brutality, which of course the answer should be zero to your question about how often should uh, unjust police killing happen. But just as there's no other conclusion through implication, dog whistles, sometime outright misstatements, celebrity tweets to come to that conclusion. So it's not just a misimpression, it's a purposeful misimpression, I would say. Or it's a misimpression that maybe the people who are constructing the news actually also have that misimpression. I I actually think that that's probably true. I think that there are a lot of folks who probably are not necessarily perceiving that what they're doing is creating disproportionate exemplars through their coverage, but rather reporting on things that are like an epidemic in the world. I think that's probably true. And we will be right back with Danigal G. Young to talk about who should be policing misinformation. Welcome back to The Gist, and we continue our conversation with Danigal G. Young, author of Wrong, How Media Politics and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. I want to get to this critique of the book because the book is very good about how people think, and I think a lot of what your uh, diagnoses of the media are, in fact, totally overlap with things I talk about. But here's my major problem, caution. I think that misinformation is so often weaponized. I think that when the United States government tries to engage in battling misinformation, it is far too tempting because things are usually partisan to just promote information that one side likes and to denigrate information one side doesn't like. And sometimes it's false information, but sometimes it's just information they don't like. And I think, I think I found out why that happens. It's right there on page 18. Scholars define misinformation as information that is inconsistent with clear evidence and expert opinion or that contradicts, quote, expert consensus contemporaneous with the time period under study. I think that's a terrible definition of misinformation because (laughs) all it does is, I mean, under that definition, when the Chicago Booth panel study of economists had 100% agreement that there would be a recession, if you wrote a blog post saying there's not going to be a recession, you'd be engaged in misinformation because none of the experts agreed with you. Yeah, well, that, that is, I like that provocation. Yeah, so th- this definition, you can imagine how problematic it was to try to determine what is misinformation in the context of an evolving health crisis, right? So when we were measuring whether people believe things that were demonstrably false, we had to literally change what the questions were over time because the CDC at first did not recommend masks. If you recall, at first it was like, you don't need masks. And then they did recommend masks. So what we were measuring, that, that 
definition really is to guide empirical scholars who are working in that space, designing survey questions to say, what are we gonna count as being misinformed at a particular moment in time? If we learn later on that, um, you know, the, the origins of COVID are, are from some completely different place, for example, are we gonna go back to the studies that were published in 2021 and recode all of those people at, who said that it, you know, was probably from a market? Um, are we gonna recode them as having been misinformed? And these are great epistemological questions. Um, my answer would be, you know, we have there has to be some metric of truth, and that is the best that we can get. Is where is the where does most of the evidence point at a given moment in time? But that's not what truth is. I mean, that's, you said you said demonstrably false. I would say you need an element in that definition with words like true or false. And I know uh, we veered a little towards the postmodern, but you can't call something misinformation if it turns out to be true. And even if you, you make the case, oh, they just got lucky that it was true, it's not misinformation. Maybe some of the people who found their way to the truth did so through legitimate means. I mean, again... Uh, the was Hunter Biden's laptop a Russian plant? The expert consensus was that yes, it was, but it turns out not to have been. So you can't say that the people who believe that were the subject of misinformation. And so I, uh, I guess I have some sympathy for the scholars, but if you're going to have a government policy that tries to mitigate against misinformation and your definition relies so heavily on the experts and not on truth, you're just going to I don't know, ban or mitigate against things that are true. That's terrible. Let me just say, first yeah. of all, okay, we agree. We agree that the never in the book, and I say explicitly in the book, the government should not be involved in the policing of misinformation. I say that explicitly. All of the scholars in the misinformation space are like, that is a bridge to a bad place. We do not want government entities in the business of policing misinformation. That being said, uh, to what extent do we want, for example, social media platforms to be the ones who are policing disinformation? Um, I don't know that we want the social media platforms to be the arbiters either. So if you look at where most of the uh, scholars working in this space are landing, they tend to be landing in this area of offering more context as an answer to potential misinformation, right? So some of the scholars who were working on um, interventions or speed bumps or friction on Twitter were suggesting, you know what, let's, instead of taking things down, et cetera, let's look at adding context, right? Those community notes, et cetera, with the idea that more information is probably better than censorship in general. Um, so yeah, that, I think that that's a bit of a misinterpretation of what I'm arguing. I'm certainly not arguing that the government should be involved in this at all. Well, the Department of Homeland Security had their disinformation governance board, and I think quite unfairly, Nina Jankowitz was harassed out of that board, and maybe Josh Hawley's, no, certainly Josh Hawley's apocalyptic 
descriptions of what that board is or should be are not the ones to be taken on face value. But it does seem, uh, more than seem, I don't want to be uh, cagey about this, it is the case that that disinformation governance board didn't just have a bad title, it had a lot of ideas and scholarship behind it that married the idea of policing disinformation with government action. And I think I'm not saying you're doing it. I'm saying that there are a lot of scholars behind (laughs) that. Oh, thanks. Um, So I my understanding is that much of the concern that was underlying the sort of creation of that board in terms of what it was they were going to be focused on was on Russian disinformation. Right. So now there that is not new. The idea that you're going to have folks working, for example, in intelligence who are trying to identify, unpack, and thwart propaganda efforts from enemies. That, that's not new. Right. I think that the issue now is that there are no borders. And so the internet makes it such that we're, not, we're never really sure what is Russian and what is domestic. Um, I think that becomes a really sticky wicket. And I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, then we get to the idea of, yes, and and by the way, Cozy Bear, Fancy Bear, this has all been demonstrated. Uh, they're trying to infiltrate American uh, media ecosystems. They've done so. Um, different scholars disagree about how effective they were. But, you know, it does touch upon, I think, the Hunter Biden laptop question, which sure. could and was defined as experts saying it was Russian disinformation. So, if you, yeah, True. you know, it's, 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 it's and, like you said, the wicket is indeed sticky. What do you think of the Fifth Circuit's uh, ruling that the government can't even advise social media companies about what might be disinformation? This is, I think this is problematic. I, this is so tricky. So I have a lot of very close friends who are now in, caught up in this Jim Jordan weaponization thing uh, because they you know, worked on research with the platforms trying to track misinformation and disinformation. And my real concern is this, the the efforts, especially of that particular uh, committee right now, are scaring away researchers from doing the kind of research that I do, that other folks do, which is trying to look at what is the nature of the information, where is it coming from, because there are really bad actors out there, Mike. And yeah, there are folks who are, according to that definition that I gave you, they would be labeled as being misinformed today. And 10 years from now, we'll be like, holy shit, they were right. Like we were wrong and they were right. That is absolutely true, okay? But that doesn't change the fact that there are some really bad actors who are working in very concentrated networks with with super efficient strategies. And the folks who are mapping and studying those efforts, they're being squashed or, or, or scared away from doing it. And I think that's not great. So what should be done if not government involvement? Or what can be done with uh, all the humility of knowing that all the stuff we talked about, sometimes the experts are wrong and sometimes our impressions that seem wrong uh, ultimately are right. So because I look at social identity as the engine that's driving a lot of this, a lot of my ideas are about ways to disrupt that um, in the United States. So 
I also feel as though our partisan media system and our political system at present is so incentivized to keep the identity threat engine running that I don't even want it deal with solutions at that level because I, I feel like it's a real uphill battle. Instead, what I look to are three different levels of solutions, social media, journalism, and individuals, because that's where we, we need to feel like we have some agency here. Agency here. So at the level of um, social media, it's a simple call, same call we've been making forever, transparency. It's transparency. We need access to anonymized data to study the trends in the nature of the information, where it's coming from, where it's going. That's what we need. In journalism, because our local independent newspapers have been decimated, a lot of our politics are nationalized. People who are interested in politics, all they have access to in many places is information about like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the AOCs. And that is that does a disservice to democratic health at the local and state level. A lot of folks have no idea what's going on in their local and state governments. And it also primes national political identity because the stuff that gets covered the most are these culture war issues, as opposed to the nuts and bolts of local policy. So if you, there's some evidence that if you have local independent newspapers, you actually reduce political polarization and you reduce people's perception that their whole identity is shaped by their political party. If people read them, I mean, I agree. It would be great, right? It would be great to breathe these papers back into True. life and to have the Baltimore Sun to have a robust news section and the Philly Inquirer and so forth. But I just don't think that's what our uh, attention is geared towards and therefore it can't be monetized. But if there is no option for it, we will never know, Mike. The other thing is that monetized is the question of the day here. We know from work in journalism that the, the democracies that are the most robust and the healthiest with great participation and representation are democracies that have robust public media infrastructures and with a longevity plan. So they're not just like at the whim of a particular party you know, who controls Congress and whether or not they're going to slash, slash the budget that year. So I, I'm interested in independent local journalism and public media infrastructures. I'm also interested in national reporters, you know, I've been calling it for, for, for it for years, uh, reducing their focus on the sort of strategy frame, competitive, aggressive battle frame, left versus right. Um, I know that there's a need for conflict and there's a need to have drama, but the more that politics are covered in that way, the more it reinforces partisan identity threat. So there are other ways to cover issues through a focus on citizens, institutions, and policy, which I think are better. And finally, among regular folks like us, Mike, uh, and this is kind of how I approach the book in general, is there's this wonderful phenomenon called intellectual humility which is being open to the possibility you might be wrong. And the more we're open to the possibility we might be wrong, the greater the likelihood that our views are empirically accurate because we're open to evidence updating our views. The name of the book is Wrong, and I think there's so much more right than wrong within how media politics and identity drive our appetite for misinformation. Dana Goldthwaite Young, a professor at the University of Delaware of Communication and Political Science. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. This was so fun.
That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeepru, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>